as an activist, you have an interaction with the world around you that is meaningful. That is where the energy comes from. We are not winning. But an activist doesn't ask this question. It's a luxury that we don't have. We are fighters and we fight. Welcome to Talking Apes. When you think of apes, my guess is your first thought is probably not crime. In fact, for me, it's nowhere close to my first or my second. But for my guest today, it's not only his first, but it's been front and center for the past two decades. This time on Talking Apes, we're exploring the world's fourth most profitable international crime, and it ranks only behind illegal drug trade, arms sales, and human trafficking. It's the illegal trafficking of wildlife. And apes are at the very core of it. Wildlife trafficking has become a multi-billion dollar criminal activity, one that is not only a critical conservation issue, but it is also a threat to global security by transporting and spreading disease. And the illicit trafficking is not just of apes. Every year, along with wildlife parts like elephant ivory and rhino horn, it's estimated that literally millions of birds and reptiles are stolen from the wild and smuggled into the shadowy world of the exotic pet trade. Stopping illegal wildlife trafficking has become one man's obsession. That man is my guest today, and his name is Ophir Drory. The 40-year-old Israeli-born activist is the founder and director of the Eagle Network, which stands for Eco-Activists for Governance and Law Enforcement a coalition of NGOs in nine countries across Africa dedicated to helping governments crack down on wildlife trafficking and poachers. Eagle is what Ophir calls a new generation of nonprofit, one that's focused not on education or policy, but on law enforcement. And to enforce that law in Central Africa, he says you first have to fight off corruption, corruption at every level and at every turn. I'm Jerry Ellis, and this is Talking Apes, where we explore the world of apes and primates with experts, conservationists, and passionate primate lovers from around the world. Talking Apes is the podcast that gets to the very heart of what's happening with and to apes like us. The Talking Apes podcast is made possible by generous support from listeners like you to nonprofit Globio at globio.org. Our long-distance conversation today with Ophir was recorded from his base in Nairobi, Kenya. Between trafficking bus, his teams were making in Gabon and Senegal. Ophir, welcome to Talking Apes. It's incredible to have you on. I'm glad we were able to arrange this. Thanks, Jerry. You know, I feel like I should say a partial congratulations because we've been back and forth on WhatsApp over the last few days. And I know you had a really successful bust in Senegal, so congratulations on that. Thank you. Thank you. Um, But you also, uh, just before we jumped on, you also mentioned that things didn't go so well. Well, it was going on well in Gabon, and and the one that didn't work is in Senegal. So that's just our our week looks like, a normal week for us looks like. And that's why I got those mixed up. That's what your normal week looks like, which I want to jump into. You are working, as I mentioned in the intro, you work uh, with the Eagle Network, and you guys are in how many countries? Well, right right now, 10. Right now, 10 countries simultaneously. I can't even imagine what your week must look like. (laughs) Never boring, I can tell you that. I actually want to start... 
to give people a bit of a background because your your well known name, I think. Um, you're certainly a well-known name in in some circles because you probably are a thorn in people's side in in places like Interpol and CITES, and we'll get into all of that. But <laughs> I, for those who are joining us and, and don't know, we haven't heard your name or, or don't know your background, maybe we can start with that a little bit. Like, you're probably the world's most famous, you know, anti-trafficker, wildlife trafficker around, or at least... In, in my mind, you are, and I wonder, I wonder if you could just give us a little bit of background about how you how you started. I mean, how does one become a, a wildlife anti trafficker? I mean, wow, it's a it's a kind of a long story, but um, well, basically, I was I was an adventurer in Africa. I was just like anyone else, just sitting and saying, "Oh, why would I go to Africa and start traveling and, and see the world?" and I, I I I loved it, and and I was uh, I fell in love with Africa, and I started traveling in real remote areas on, on a horse, on a with a camel, and and, and on foot, um, in a canoe, and I started doing these uh, remote travels, um, trying to find the most remote tribes in Africa, learn from them, absorb what I can, open my mind, trying to really find who I want to be. And, and in that process, I fell in love with Africa. And falling in love with Africa, I wanted, you know, I felt an urge to give back. So slowly, slowly, I started becoming an activist, but it was kind of like a natural thing that can happen to just anyone that, that goes somewhere and just throws themselves into an adventure, you know. And, and, and uh, I started helping in humanitarian operations here and teaching in villages there and just on my own, you know, working in a farm somewhere uh, for somebody who just gave me his, his, his bed in a mud hut. And, 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 you know, slowly, slowly I started each time seeing a situation and just trying to see what I can do to help because that's the urge I, I felt. And I went to war zones and then I, I became a journalist and a photojournalist just trying to shout out the problems in Africa human rights issues and, and all this. And basically that's how I rolled into into this, into what I do now, because I I, I was doing an, an article about human rights in in Nigeria, stoning of women and children started becoming uh, you know I finished I finished that and, and it started becoming tough. I crossed the border from Nigeria to Cameroon. Cameroon is a country of uh, rainforest and um, and I wanted basically to take a break of the of the hard stuff. So I said, okay, let me just, I'm here for a few weeks. I was just roaming from country to country at the time, trying to get some adventures and do some good somewhere. And uh, and, I, and coming to Cameroon, I said, what, what can I do that is easy and good? And I went after um, the words of Jane Goodall, the primatologist and uh, we're saying that in, 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 in 15, 20 years, we're going to lose uh, eight and many other protected endangered species um, because of the illegal trade in their, in their meat. And I would say, okay, well, look, that's a good thing for me to write about. Let me write about it, put it in an in-flight magazine or something where people have money, can donate to people or to those who are fighting in the front lines against this illegal trade. 
and and go back to the you know to the real stuff to Nigeria to the human rights things and and I thought that would be an easy thing to do and it ended up to be very complicated because uh, I started writing my my article and, and it was pretty uh, pretty easy to to understand because I going in Cameroon I could see um, ape heads and ape meat uh, chimp meat gorilla meat uh, parts uh, sold quite openly um, and and I decided to stay in checkpoint of police checkpoints and wildlife officers checkpoints and I could see that not only that it's all over the place it's actually this illegal trade is actually run by those wildlife officers and police officers so everything was pretty clear that those you know are 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 uh, those wonderful creatures are racing towards extinction and there is a law that is there to to protect them but the real opposite is happening in the field the illegal trade is rampant uh, it's clear how uh, how it works and it's clear that the illegal trade is is uh, is done by high people high authorities that are actually consuming it because it's far bigger money than anything else that you could maybe eat in, in the country and that it is rooted in corruption not only because I saw the wildlife officers and police officers running the trade to start with you could see the bribing going on in all different uh, different levels so I, I started writing a 20 pages article and I had most of it after two weeks because everything is quite in the open and the story was pretty clear um, and from past articles, I knew that you know if you write all the bad things that happen, it doesn't motivate people to for action, and and it's another another kind of bad story from Africa, and it doesn't lead us to something positive or constructive. Uh, and so, after writing three quarters of my article, I wanted to dedicate the end to the light in the end of the tunnel. Those who are fighting in the forefront against illegal trade fighting corruption to get the law applied and and fight for for the future of those of those uh, of, of gorillas and and chimps and that's where I went to the NGO world that's where I went to the nonprofits the, the conservation organizations uh, and to the international bodies uh, you know um, uh, some of the World Bank and, and so on those that I thought are a part of the of the solution and as a journalist, it was very difficult for me to even find answers, um, to even get interviews. And when I got interviews, I was kind of shocked. I didn't get what I wanted. I didn't get what I thought I would have. I got some people in offices talking to me about seminars and workshops. And when I said, hey, what about the law, applying the law, enforcement? They were saying, no, that's not for us. You know, that's for government. And when I said, well, Wait a second. So if you don't help in that or push for that, what about corruption? I mean, everything is corrupt. You can see it from start to finish. Where are you standing in that? And at that time, they were even afraid to, 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 to pronounce the word corruption uh, in an interview. So I, I didn't know what to do. And in the meanwhile, I could see the four by fours um, uh, driving around town, a really beautiful and shiny and very far away from solving the problem. 
meanwhile, just 500 meters, 300 meters from their offices, you could see ape meat being sold. Um, and I talked about ape meat, so just for those who don't know, ape, ape meat is considered a, an, an exclusive kind of, um, kind of delicacy. Uh, so it became like a, a status symbol, just like caviar, let's say. That will be the caviar of Central Africa. So if you are rich, you are wealthy, you want to impress your guests, um, you try to bring ape meat. That would be the parallel of a caviar. Uh, a bit more harmful than caviar. <laughs> but, uh, and in and any case, that was the thing. I was completely frustrated. I didn't know what to do. And I knew that I have to find something new to do as an activist uh, to have a mean, meaningful interaction with, that, with this problem, with what I see, with that I, what I experience, because that's what activists do. So I was starting to, I was completely frustrated. I didn't know what I'm going to do, but I knew I needed to do something. And I went out of the capital for, to a small town and and when the public transport went down and within five minutes talking to people, just sitting in a bar, having my Coke and talking to people, they could tell me, hey, look, yeah, here on the right, this is where we sell the gorilla meat. And here on the, on the left, you can sell uh, some of the chimps and, and we also have some live ones. And I was like, what are the live ones? And basically, the if we find baby apes, baby chimps, baby gorillas in the trade, they are basically the survivors of the trade in the meat of apes. Um, when a poacher goes to the forest, he, he shoots an ape. Uh, basically, if it is a chimp, for example, then the chimps will try to protect each other. So we'll end up shooting several chimps uh, of the same family that are just fighting uh, to protect themselves against guns, you know? And uh, baby chimp and baby gorilla stays on the back of their mother for the first, let's say, three years of their life. And they are totally dependent on the mother. So typically a mother's body will fall from the, from the tree down, dead. And a baby chimp cannot run away. They are totally dependent on the, on the mother. So they'll typically cling to the mother's body and, and just cry. And a poacher would lift that baby and say, okay, well, let's calculate. I can cut it right now with a machete and, and, and sell it for the meat. Or I can speculate and try to, uh, to, try to see if I can sell it as a, as a pet. Um, and if he decides to sell it as a pet, then that baby still survives for a little bit more. Chimps can survive. Uh, baby gorillas they don't last more much. You can feed them, you can give them uh, milk, uh, water, food, but without love and care and hugs and attention, they will just snap and die. That's just the be behavior, that's a phenomenon with, with baby gorillas. They have real needs for emotional needs. And if this doesn't meet, if this is not met, then, um, they will just snap and die. Their, 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 their immune system will collapse. Baby chimps have a different kind of technique, different kind of strategy. They just lock down their emotional world and, and their behavior actually really kind of like um, reminds us um, 
a human that are in shock, you know. Uh, for example, rocking themselves, just rocking, rocking, rocking nonstop throughout the day, day by day. That is a human behavior, and that's exactly what, what chimps in captivity would do. And they would have more time, um, and they will die at a certain point and pace. Uh, if either they are sold in the trade and, and the rate of, uh, of survival is really uh, low there, or they will just remain in the poacher's place and, and die there. So I went in and, and long story short, I found myself in front of a baby chimp with poachers who were trying to sell them, him to me. And he was sick, abused, um, tied in the weights, very, you know, like many others, tied in the weights in a rope that was giving him uh, bloody wounds. And, um, and he was about to, to die, he was sick very tiny, about a year, a year and a half old. And everybody treated him like a rat, and that's how, you know, that's how he behaved. They kind of poked him with a stick, and he was snapping his teeth, and, and you couldn't see any emotions in, in, in the, 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 the complexity of emotions that, that we see uh, in, in chimps. And I knew I had to save this baby chimp, because it's a year and a half old, it's going to die, chimps can live in captivity up to 60 years in nature, a bit less. At any case, here's a baby chimp that uh, such a magnificent animal, and he would die in a few months or if not a few weeks. Uh, but if I manage to save him, he can outlive me. And I knew I don't want to give the money to, to buy the baby chimp because that will just send them back to the forest to kill more chimps, encourage them to, to, to see that there's like real good market for, for pets. Um, so I went to the wildlife station. Uh, I went to the wildlife station on their, uh, on the wall there was a, there was a poster of the, of the, of the law in Cameroon up to three years imprisonment uh, for anybody even touching a protected species. It was there uh, and I come to them and I'm saying, listen, there is a baby chimp we need to rescue this baby chimp, get him to the zoo in the capital, uh, to a sanctuary later on. And we need to confiscate this baby chimp. And they looked at me and said, well, give us money. They wanted a bribe. And I tried to explain. The yeah, the wildlife officials, of course. Yeah, the wildlife officials. Uh, give me money. I said, listen, look, you don't understand. There is a baby chimp. He will die. Let's just go there. It's about less than a kilometer from your office. Let's go there. And they say, well, give us, facilitate our transport. I didn't know what they meant. Later, I understood that this is, these are like um, keywords the NGOs were using uh, to basically give bribes. And I said, well, look, this is the situation here. The law is on, on, on your wall. And they said, well, give us... Uh, Perdiems. Later I understood all these are code words that NGOs were using uh, in order to give pocket money uh, to these officials. And uh, after 40 minutes that I'm just struggling and explaining and trying to push them to do that and saying, look at me, I don't have money. I'm a traveler. Um, they ended up trying to sell me a, another baby chimp. They said, hey, white man, what do you want? You want a baby chimp? 
Don't complicate things. We can sell you another one cheaper. So everything was right in, in my face. That was everything. All the story I was writing about was just in front of me, only that now, all of it, including the frustration from the NGOs, from, the, from conservation, was now in the eyes of this small baby chimp, tied in a small corner. Um, and, and I went to my small motel, and I knew I had to do something. I couldn't sleep the whole night. So the whole night I started, I, I started writing, I circulated my, my small table and, and, and just being very annoyed and, and writing, jotting a few, few words and continuing. And I, I wrote about my criticism about this entire system, about, about corruption and how nobody can fight it and conservation just being a part of the problem and, and that the law is not applied and that somebody has to do something. Real activists have to, to really um, do something about it. And, so half the night, I was just writing all my criticism about the lack of measurable standards of conservation, uh, the lack of real tangible results on conservation. They could just do their projects and, and give a prospect of some nice, nice apes, nice chimps uh, from sanctuaries. And then, uh, and then all this is happening in the field, complete opposite of what is their objective. And they do nothing. Uh, so... Somewhere along the night, I sort of feel, why are you so, why are you so, so angry? Like, what, what are you, what were you expecting to find? Why are you so shocked? And then I wrote, I started writing it. I started writing, you know, that's what is needed. Activists like me are needed to have a, a real NGO, not just like a nice one with four by fours, but fighters that will fight corruption to get the law applied fight corruption to get those traffickers in jail and get the, and get those those wildlife officials that were just in front of me in jail for being corrupt for being a part of the trade and i started writing it down and i said okay well how will that work it will work like an ngo that will be based on activists and activism and african activists and it will it needs to have a real tangible measure real tangible results and real measurable indicators for for uh, succeeding or not, um, and take a country that had its wildlife laws not been applied a single time for any trafficker, no trafficker ever getting to jail, uh, and put it on a rate of one per week. I, I just put it like that, like one per week, one, ma one major trafficker arrested, and then uh, put in jail per week. And for that, we have to, you know, an NGO like this will have to really do everything, fight corruption on every step. They will have to run undercover investigations on their own uh, and infiltrate the trade and start climbing up the chain and getting the bigger traffickers and, and the wildlife officials and, and police official, officials and politicians that are behind this illegal trade. And then cannot just give the information to the police. The police are corrupt. I've seen them selling apes. I've seen them running the trade. So they will have to supervise arrest operations in the field. Take these people in the, in the hand and fight corruption in the field that is bound to happen to make sure that these people are arrested this, and, 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 and fight the corruption in real time and then bring them for interrogation. And then we cannot just take those people and bring them to the courts because I'm sure the courts are corrupt as well. 
it's not for nothing that zero wildlife prosecutions have ever happened in countries like Cameroon, in all of the countries we've known before we arrived. So we need to have private prosecution. We need to have a prosecutor from our own side to prosecute those cases. We need to have legal advisors that will go and check what's happening in the judge's office and, uh, uh, and in the court, trying to find and intercept corruption that comes in and combat it in real time. But if you have corruption, if you found corruption at that judicial level, at the, you know, with judges, how how do you use you know even if you can find attorneys lawyer you know lawyers that will fight your case and and work on your side how do you cut through that barrier i mean that seems to be uh, you know well look at that point at that point i didn't know all the answers but I, as an activist i knew i will do it i i knew that this is how it needs to be done you know i knew that it has to be done and there must be a way to do that, to fight corruption in court. You know, I, it wasn't about it wasn't about trying to find the good people. It wasn't about that. It was about intercepting, fighting corruption. I didn't put my faith in a good prosecutor. I put my faith in, in activists that will fight to find when he is taking a bribe, although we thought he's good. So that was, you know, that was the that was what I was writing all the during the night, and I said, "Well, we all this NGO, this new thing has to has to also publicize it, so that everybody will know that the law is applied now, and the people get to jail, so that it will create some kind of deterrence." And and I wrote this entire thing, and in my mind, I still was thinking, "Okay, I'll I'll write this article, I finish this thing, I'll save this ape, I'll save this chimp, and I I I, I give it to somebody." To make it, and I'll continue moving from country to country, doing my my thing. I went in the morning to the to the wallet station, and I told them, "Listen, I don't need you to do anything. Just give me the book of law, and I will do everything." And I took the book of law. I went back to the traffickers' house. I told them, and I opened the book of law to the article that gives three years imprisonment for anybody even touching this gym. And I put it there and I said, well, read it. And they read it and they looked at me and they looked at the book again and they looked at me and they were totally unimpressed. They were unimpressed because they knew this is like, what, what is the law in the book? It's like what, a $3 bribe, $4 bribe, so what? So then I said, well, listen, and I started bluffing them using what I wrote during the night. I said, listen, I am a part of this new big NGO, new nonprofit that is fighting corruption to get the law applied. And my only job is to make sure you don't bribe your way out. And the judge is waiting for you. And there is a car coming to take you. And uh, I'm sorry, but that's my work. You know, my job is to make sure you go to jail. Now they go totally hysterical. My bluff worked fantastically. They were totally hysterical. And, um, and I let them boil in the juices a bit. And I did as if I'm, 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 I'm calling a, a, an imaginary headquarters saying, yes, no, they're on the way. They're collaborative. Don't worry. The judge is waiting. Okay, good. You'll see them today. Very good. And, 
And and after a while, I told him, listen, you know, I know that um, that that you are you brought me to your house. I feel bad about it. You know, if you remain my informant and you and you give me information about who activates you in this big chain of of the illegal trade, maybe there's something I can do for you. And they were pleading, please, please do something for us. And of course, at this point, they just wanted to get rid of this baby, Jim. So I went in and I was untying the baby chimp from those ropes in the waist. And they were afraid because they were, they were sure that this baby chimp that was acting like a rat would just run away. But I knew what was inside, uh, locked in the, uh, in, inside this baby chimp. And I untied him and I just stretched my hands, my arms forward. And he climbed my body, very tiny, very tiny baby chimp, climbed my body and gave me one big hug. And in that moment, he, he transformed from, from a rat that everybody saw him like to, to a baby chimp, to a baby chimp with endless need in love and care and hugs. And these hugs became permanent. Now, I named, him, I named this baby chimp Future because that's what I wanted to give him. And I was, I was thinking, okay, good, you know, he hugged me. I'm his, he adopted me at that moment as his father and mother. And I couldn't take him away from me from that second onward. But I was still under the impression that I'm going to go to the capital, give the baby chimp to the sanctuary uh, of Apes Sanctuary, and take what I wrote to somebody in the capital, an imaginary activist, and say, Take this, do it, things will be better. You can fight for the future of the species as well. Go and do it. And uh, and, and go and you know continue traveling. Uh, I went to the capital and everything changed. Uh, the sanctuary couldn't receive him, so I was basically having a, a baby chimp and I was his father and mother and now it's permanent. Uh, and I found myself with this with this piece of paper, you know, all these things that I wrote and thinking, well, who the hell can do that? The people who wear suits in, in, the, in the conservation NGOs, the guy in the World Bank that had never went out of his office. Um, and basically this future, baby future forced me to stay in Cameroon and apply what I was writing to prove that it is possible. Um, and that's how it started. And that's how I got into the whole thing. And that's how I set up the first uh, wildlife law enforcement NGO in the world, basically, that fights corruption. And, and, and what I wrote that night is what we do today. And, and that's Laga, that first one that you set up. That was, yeah, that, that was the first. The first NGO we built was the last Great Ape Organization. And the face of future is its logo. Uh, and, and then it started, you know, we started getting... We started applying it. We started getting arrests. We started really arresting people, managing to arrest people, and got the first ever prosecution of a wildlife trafficker in the country. And when it happened and went to all international media, we realized, wait a second, it's not just in Cameroon. It's in all of the range of great apes, all of Central Africa, of, of African great apes. And, and then we started replicating that, you know, replicating that model. I went to the next country and started setting this up again in the same way and went to another country uh, and, 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 and tried to recruit 
local activists and, and try to to make this happen in, in the next one. And then we went to other countries that are not great apes countries and saw that it was the same in other countries. I just want to pick up on that, Ophir. I, Laga and creation of Laga, it sounded like you were becoming the de facto wildlife department. I mean, you were out there doing the bus. How does... I've met with some of your team in, in uh, Cameroon, and one of the things that um, was a bit shocking, I, I shouldn't have been, but one of the things that was a bit shocking to me was the fact that I had to park down the street from their offices. Somebody came down and got me. Then we went up through this you know, kind of twisted way up through a neighborhood, and then I came into these offices, and here's this group of people working in there, and then I went out on the back deck overlooking, you know, this neighborhood, and we had our interview and conversation, and in that, I mean, we we talked about the fact that um, they get life, they get death threats, they their families are threatened, and there is a, a level of of secrecy that they have to have about what they do and not be able to tell people because you know people will be bribed and 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 you must and so I'm curious like you you set this thing up in in initially in Cameroon with Laga and how it seems like you would be running against all the powers that be the 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 corrupt politicians the corrupt wildlife officials the corrupt police how, how is it that they're going to let you even operate? It seems like they, especially you being a foreigner. Well, first, I mean, <laughs> it's interesting because an activist never asks for somebody to let him do something. You know, it's the opposite. You know, it's the opposite of their perspective. You know, uh, and it's funny because indeed I had a lot of problems with that from the from the conservation world that has that kind of dogma of like, okay, what will be allowed to do? What can we? Who? You know, without annoying anybody. Um, that wasn't our approach from the start. It wasn't my approach from the start. I knew this has to be done, and I'm doing it as an activist, and, and of course nobody would let me. Of course, it wasn't even a question. Who would let me? The, the corrupt police would let me supervise them? The corrupt judges would let me record them and, 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 and catch them on corruption and would get them removed? Um, you know, who? Of course not. We didn't, you know, the idea wasn't to replace a, a, a system that is dysfunctional, because it is dysfunctional, you know. I talked about corruption, so I can tell you that, you know, um, when I was rescuing Future, that was, you know, it, it was it was clear. But later, we could get the statistics to support it, you know. Um, in all of our cases now in different countries, 85% uh, of, of our arrest operations, we document, we intercept a corruption attempts, bribing attempts, traffic of influence, um, sabotaging the arrest by, by police officers. All of those things, 85%. Now imagine how dysfunctional is a police force that 85% of the time ends up in corruption. Okay? It's a miracle that you'll get somebody arrested. And if that person is arrested and being one of these unfortunate ones that end up not bribing, uh, then you get to the court. In the court, our statistics is 80% of the time we intercept corruption. 80%. Now, when I say inter inter so imagine how dysfunctional is the justice system. 
that 80% of the time doesn't produce justice. You know, so it's, it's, it's very clear why there was no prosecution of a wildlife trafficker for almost all the countries in Central and West Africa, all of the range of what we're talking about, not even a single one. You know, uh, when you look at corruption, it's very clear. Uh, but we don't just intercept, you know, we don't just detect corruption. We're not a watchdog group. We are a law enforcement NGO. We're fighting corruption in real time. So I don't ask if you let me fight with you, corrupt police officer, do you let me fight with you physically? Do you let me come into your office and record you? Do you let me? No, of course you don't let me. Nobody's letting you effect a change. That is what an act activism is all about. You go with your own convictions, you go with your own passion, and you take your own responsibility in making the change that you want. You know, there's this uh, quote for Gandhi that has become a cliche, be the change that you want to see, you know, and and in a way, that's exactly what I was. But that change has a risk. Yeah, but 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 but, but what I'm saying is that that's exactly what I was doing because I, what I wanted to see was in my article. I wanted to see those people, and they were not there, so I had to turn into that. And by the way, I never finished my article. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's not too late. But, <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm in the forefront. You know. uh, I jumped. I'm jumped from 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 writing about it to actually, you know, uh, when I saw that that is not the tool to use to actually trying to create it, and, and that's what we created. But that's that's what I want to get to. I mean, you're, you know, in the introduction um, to this podcast, I talked about the fact that this is the fo fourth most lucrative transnational crime in the world, and which may come as a shock to people, but it's it's. It's often intimately linked to the first, second, and third, which is you know arms trafficking, human trafficking, uh, drugs, and when when you're talking about incredibly powerful people who have huge amounts of money at stake, and it it just seems I'm I'm curious as I'm sure anyone would be. I mean, when you start. You start messing with that group of people and interrupting their flow of money, you become a serious threat. And your how do you how do you stay out of your own harm's way? Well, first of all, I mean it was a given for us. It was clear to us that we were fighting real criminals. I mean we 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 saw it. We, we understand um, the idea that there's a few poachers uh, uh, hunting some apes and trying to sell them is ridiculous. It's ludicrous, you know. Of course, it's it's an organized crime, and it's very much rooted in corruption and complicity, and these are very organized groups. And we're talking about apes, and we we started with with uh, with apes, but we continue to ivory and uh, the ivory trade, and leopard skins and lion skins, and 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 uh, um, very endangered kinds of parrots, and and and, and many different, and and now pangolin scales. We can expand on that later. Um, the illegal trade is, is vast, and, and yes, it is powerful. And, and we started climbing up the chain. So in the beginning, we started getting some traffickers, and we managed to get them in jail. We managed to get some legitimacy to climb up and now put the bigger guys, to put a police commissioner in jail, to put a colonel in jail, an army captain in jail, to put a politician in jail, you know, 
we managed to put a wireless director that would be like the parallel uh, of, you know, the, the the person in charge of entire wireless protection of his country, you know, um, the head of that in jail because he was a he was the biggest trafficker. We managed to remove deputy ministers. We managed to get um, governors behind bars. Uh, climbing the chain, uh, you know, happened gradually for us, and we managed to climb up. We managed to remove uh, remove magistrates from the from the system. We managed to, um, uh, to to arrest conservation NGOs personnel. You know, everything that we were talking about where we saw corruption, we managed to climb up to those to those levels. So yeah, the threats are many. You know, there are many. They've been there from the onset. Uh, it's very natural for someone that you managed to put behind bars to tell you, I will get out and I'll kill you. This is somehow usual, you know. Uh, but we have more serious threats than that when people are far more powerful. When you have a police commissioner that you managed to put behind bars and he is saying that <laughs> he will kill you. Uh, so we have physical threats that are pretty common for all of our teams. And we have um, political threats because obviously a lot of this is connected to political systems and politicians are involved as in organized crime everywhere in the world. Um, so we have political threats as well. Uh, and we have legal threats. Of course, we have politicians that were getting out and big traffickers are trying to use uh, corruption within the court, try to get us into jail. You know, so all of those threats exist. You've mentioned NGOs a couple of times, and I, I just, I'd like to follow that up. We, is, it seems as though there's a conflict between you and uh, many of the NGOs that purport to be working on the ground to do all this saving of, of landscape and, and species. It's like, can you talk about that a little sure, bit? Sure. Look, from the onset, you know, even from my criticism on that day where before rescuing future, the baby chimps, you know, it was all about criticism. I, I was I was shocked from the conservation world. I was talking about trying to find the light in the end of the tunnel when I was writing my article. But in fact, what I found was a train. You know, light of a train just just uh, just uh, 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 heading right right towards me because it was it was a disaster. I was shocked from the hypocrisy, and I was shocked also by the corruption. Uh, definitely, we identified later on per NGO, personal NGO vehicles, are conservation NGO vehicles used for trafficking itself. And why wouldn't it? You know, it, it is, um, these are the only 4x4s moving in areas which are prone for trafficking. And so traffickers are using those vehicles and striking deals with the drivers and sometimes project managers. Um, so we've seen we've seen that a lot, and this criticism has never stopped. I'm an activist. We're not there to try to be in good relations with the world. We are here to change things, uh, and therefore we'll be vocal whenever something is, you know, whenever there is injustice, and that is injustice. Uh, so some of the things have changed during the years. Uh, pressure works. Uh, some of it did, and, and, and some of the organizations still are with rampant corruption. Uh, and that eff affects directly uh, poaching inside national parks. Uh, and so 
we are kind of like trying to push conservation throughout to one um, deal with corruption. Uh, understand this is this is the first, second, and third obstacle for all of our conservation goals. Definitely for enforcement. Secondly, not hide away from enforcement because the illegal trade in wildlife is really a major, um, especially in Africa, a major uh, cause for the race towards extinction of many species. Uh, and the third is to fight corruption within themselves, put measures inside themselves uh, to not be harmed by corruption. If you're functioning any kind of organization inside what is a corrupt environment, if you don't have specific uh, uh, um, uh, uh, checks and balances, then it will be prone to become corrupt. That's there's no reason why it will be exceptional. So that is that is our role. And we even with your own organization, I mean, now that you're span with the Eagle Network, you're spanned across you know ten countries. I mean, you must have that must be a constant battle for yourself, keeping corruption out of your own organization. Of, of course, it's, of course, it starts with the activists and then with who you recruit, and it continued with lots of uh, a very strict kind of uh, system that has uh, indicators and, 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 and tangible results for every uh, for every step of the way. And if you don't get it, you're out at any case. So it's not about trying. If you don't get uh, traffickers behind bars, you're out. Uh, and of course, we have our own internal investigations. We have our own ways of verifying things so that if corruption arrives and when corruption arrives, or if you have somebody who is trying to be tempted, um, then he will find himself out or her, herself out very fast. It's not because we have an ethos that will be protected from corruption. It's about systems and how you build a system um, and about anti-corruption being your objective and understanding that corruption is not a side thing. It's the water we swim in. That is the major obstacle, you know. Um, and therefore, your main objective should be fighting corruption in, in accordance to, 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 the, to, uh, to, to your context. Uh, and we talked about... Um, uh, we talked about... Uh, the issues, you know, one side of the threat that we get, you get constantly uh, for anybody on our team, uh, but there's also the other side. There's the bribes. Okay, and the bribes can arrive to astronomical astronomical uh, uh, figures. We had uh, uh, an activist in Gabon, and I'll tell you a small story to just, you know, kind of like get the idea of, of what people have to face and how it is. Um, and he was uh, leading an arrest operation with the police and the wildlife uh, for for two people, a trafficker and a poacher. And they, they came to a place in a clearing somewhere uh, next to town, and, and the police just went. They just disappeared. So he found himself saying, the traffickers are here and they're about to leave, and the police is just out there. The wildlife was hiding. And when they started running, he ran after them. He ran after them and and trying to stop them himself, which happens to us a lot, which does happen to us when we get operations going down, we just jump on traffickers. Um, 
sometimes even when police is trying to sabotage the operations and we have to fight to try to arrest them just uh, uh, in spite of the police uh, efforts to, to release them. Um, and he was running and he was running after them and they ran away and one of them, the poacher was holding a gun and he was during the, that kind of running away and he's running after them, he moved back, backwards and shot. And that guy jumped back and he shot basically his butt. And it was Christmas. And this activist he, he, from the Gabon team was in hospital in Christmas. And TV was came to him and interviewed him. And he said, you know, this only strengthened my resolve. That means that I'm, I'm, I'm only stronger because of this. And I, I promise and vow here on TV that these people who ran away, I will get out of, get out of hospital and I will catch them and we'll put them in jail where they belong. Um, and you know what? He did get better. And three months after, he managed to get them, uh, get them arrested and behind bars. Um, and, 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 and besides that, you know, besides all of these risks, you have bribing and, you know, we had uh, another activist in Gabon that we arrested a head of a logging company, a Chinese head of a logging company. And when they tried to threaten and it didn't work, they came directly to the to that uh, uh, to that activist, and they came to him, and they offered him thirty thousand euros. That is an enormous, enormous work. And and a woman, and a girl, a girl. Came. That's an enormous amount of money. They gave. They gave. He, he hurt. They gave me to you. So they gave the girl. They were giving him a girl. Yeah, unbelievable. Yeah, and this is a part of corruption. You know, a lot of cor you know there are many times corruption gets exactly this kind of this kind of effect. You can uh, you can see how much of you know, corrosive effect it has on the society, how destructive it can be on so many levels, uh, and not just wildlife. And that's why for us it's it's uh, it's a privilege to to work on corruption through wildlife because a lot of times we manage to have an impact. In the fight against corruption that was never there before, where we managed to get, managed to show people what is possible in the fight against corruption. And corruption is not uh, necessarily that kind of uh, that kind of invisible. So, enemy. what what percentage of these uh, of of the the people that you uh, the, that you bust in these activities? What what percentage would you say is are these people also involved in other types of crime activity? Well. It's, it's hard to think about it statistically, but I can tell you that we have a lot of times when we have, we have many times in which we can see that illustrated. Um, for example, one of the busts we had was of a, of a trafficker that was a drug trafficker and an ape trafficker going to Nigeria. And um, we have this photo when we arrested him with his, with his car. In the back of the car, you see uh, huge sacks. The entire back is full of huge sacks of marijuana. Uh, and, and some cocaine up in a container. And in the middle of this entire picture, you see between the sacks, a baby chimp squeezed in with a diaper and a feeding bottle. Um, and, and so clearer than that, <laughs> it's difficult to have as a visual of, of that kind of like link between the drug trade and the ape trade and, and, and wildlife. And understanding that traffickers are traffickers, they're just trying to look at their 
uh, illicit margin of revenue, how much money they can make per kg, per, per volume, you know. And wildlife, some of the wildlife can, can bring, can fetch more money than, than drugs, you know. So, so definitely drug traffickers will do it. And, 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 and we had a case in, in Ivory Coast uh, uh, on the Vietnamese syndicate, and we found, um, we found pages in his house, in, in house search, pages that shows the picture of the girl and who she is, what she, you know, and you know that in Africa we have female circ uh, um, uh, uh, female genital mutilation, uh, uh, female circumcision, and and it was asked, are you circumcised there or not? And when we started interrogating the, the, the Chinese from that Vietnamese syndicate, he was Chinese, um, what was it? And he says, I just tried to get them job in, in China. And that was, uh, that was human trafficking for prostitution of Africans in China. And we started getting in touch with those girls that were about to leave or decided not to leave at the last moment after filing and things and said, and they were saying, yes, he was, he was touching us, he was asking us to undress, and he promised us that we'll go to China and we'll have work, and then later he said that we're going to dance, but we can be naked, and, you know. So these are the, you know, these are the faces of the traffickers that we managed to get arrested, um, and we find the links to drug trade, arms trade, um, human trafficking, and all sorts of, uh, all sorts of, uh, of, of really, um, sometimes shocking, the worst of, the, I would say, the worst of humanity, what, uh, what you could mm. see. And I would assume that on that list of trafficking items, like, I, I mean, it was interesting what you said. It's like they're trafficking per kilo. It doesn't really matter what the thing is they're trafficking. It's, it's the amount that you're trafficking. Exactly. And that's where the money is. But I would assume that on that list of trafficked items, wildlife is probably lowest on the list in terms of prosecution. So I would say that if you think, I would say that if you think after all my explanation about 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 corruption in the judiciary and the enforcement system, if you think that a lot of drug traffickers are actually getting to jail, you know, and even if they get to jail, you know, I didn't mention that, but but, but even after people are getting to jail and and prosecuted and and we accompany them to see that they're actually getting to jail, we still have to visit them every week in jail to check that. They're well fed and that uh, they are in good health and that they are there because because they will because they will be because when you have the money you'll try to bribe your way out and a lot of these traffickers have the money and have the influence for it so often we have people that we go to to the jail visits and they are not there because of course they bribe their way out in that case we have to go to the prison head and say what happened and he would lie and say he, they, he escaped and so we sign an arrest warrant and go to kick him back in jail and then that's a part of our work so it's never ending so i don't think it's a lot different for the drug traffickers and the arms traffickers and and anybody else who is powerful that is connected to organized crime it's a general problem it's a general problem where you have real wealthy uh, powerful individuals and and whether they can actually uh, and whether our enforcement systems and and uh, enforcement systems and 
and, and justice systems are able to, uh, to, to be a strong tool against them. And again, it's not only in Africa. You could see wherever you have mafias, this is what is going on. You know, we have to understand that organized crime has that kind of like, has that kind of um, uh, captures the same systems that are there to, to remove it. Well, you know, when, when explaining this to, to, to some of the police officers that are better at working with us or, ju or judges that are champions that got some good prosecutions, I'm saying, you are the soap. You are a superhero soap of our society. And if our soap is getting dirty, there is, it's nothing. We can just, you know, there's no society. There is no governance. There is nothing. You know, so your, your responsibility is that. Um, and indeed, if that is done, it's finished. Well, speaking of responsibility, it's, I mean, there, there is an international body that's supposed to be part of this solution, and it's, it's called CITES, Convention on uh, International Trade in Endangered Species, which I've always found to be kind of ironic name in the fact that it's a trade in endangered species is part of their title. Um, it should be... <laughs> non-trade exactly. endangered species yeah. but where do they fit in all of this if, if they're supposed to be this umbrella organization that sort of you know yeah. controls so look, some first of this of all, let's talk about you know let's talk about the, the the expectation because you know when people are listening to us they, they they think okay well there is a convention un convention uh, for endangered species then you're thinking well I, I know that there is un convention for human rights its job is to protect human rights I know that there is a UN convention on, you know, whatever you know that our, that our convention, that all the nations are put together. You know, you have the World Health Organization. It's supposed to take care of the health. CITES in that way is a very funny UN convention. It's a UN convention that is not supposed to protect animals. Uh, it's supposed to balance between protecting animals to a commercial interest to make money out of animals. I don't think there is any other convention that does that. It would be the parallel to it would be like, hey, let's let's have the convention on the rights of the children, but hey, let's make sure that, that some some countries can make money out of these children, right? So let's make sure that this money continues. We'll balance the interest. No, we never done that. We said no, children shouldn't work. They should go to school. That is the essence of that convention. So in a way, you know, in a way, Cyrus uh, is, is is kind of like an exception in that way, and that's the heart of the problem. Um, but it gets, so in a way for us, scientists is a sort of a damage control situation. Because look, we have a trade protection, trade slash protection convention. What does it do actually? It gives permits for illegal trade. And it says, look, we'll have permitting, if we have a permitting licensing system, then things will be more organized. And then if something is illegal, it's illegal completely. So ivory should be illegal. But guess what? Ivory is illegal in one side and then it's legal in another way. So if you have a permit, it's legal. So in a way for us, scientists is a very big laundering machine of the illegal trade. You take an ape from one side and a corrupt official, high official, is putting a permit and writing this baby chimp is sent to this way. And all of a sudden, this chimp is legal. 
So imagine how it is from a law enforcement point of view where I have just have to follow one thing and all of a sudden it becomes legal because of CITES. So first of all, it's a damage control situation that we have with this UN convention. The second thing is that there is corruption inside the convention, which means that a country like Japan that is having very strong financial interests in whaling and whales and sharks because they want shark fin soup on the tables in Japan. It's a huge industry. Guess what? Inside us, you have people with suits and ties, and they call themselves the head of association of ivory carvers, the head of association of shark, uh, you know, shark exploitation. So when Citus is trying to say, hey, let's let's bring up the protection for sharks or whales, Japan is bribing countries to vote this or that. There were articles written about that, and it was called checkbook diplomacy. I think it describes very well the idea of it. But also intimidation. I was intimidated as a, as a part of a delegation of a government. And all of us were intimidated and were given text to read. So when a big country like Japan tells a delegate, a person who is representing his country, that he will write, that Japan will write his president, that him, his small guy, that is supposed to represent his country, was doing something that, was doing something that is a declaration of war on Japan, then a small guy like this says, yeah, yeah, tell me what to read. And you have an orchestrated kind of like a symphony that Japan can just wait for different countries to read what they've written before. And each country is saying, there was, there was one country in this specific debate that I'm talking about, just the example of the whaling, that was saying, we are against, we cannot, uh, we are against putting those sharks in the uh, uh, putting those sharks in this uh, because it will hurt the fishermen, the poor fishermen in our country. It was a landlocked country. <laughs> <laughs> so that is that is Titus, and I could say that even the Secretary General of the Convention, you know, every UN convention has a Secretary General. The Secretary General of the Convention has been there for I think eight years, if I'm mistaken, if not more. In the day that he left, was granting interviews, and he was saying, you know what you need to put on the S of the CITES? Put two lines. It's all about the money. It's all about corruption. Where is the future? Where is the hope? <laughs> Where is, I mean, I, I, I know that sounds like a ridiculous no, no, word, not. but, you, you know, you, you, go back, you go back to, I mean, I read in your book, and for for anyone who wants an incredible read, it's called The Last Great Ape, and it was published in 2012, I think. And one of the things in in that book is you talk about that you know, and and you mentioned it earlier, Jane Goodall, you know, sort of pessimistically saying if if we don't do something in 15, 20 years, you know, these apes are going to be gone. And that was actually one of the that I I heard that same thing, and that was one of the things that motivated me to start doing some of the things that I I was doing, and and. And we're having this talk on on talking apes. Actually, is trying to create greater awareness because people just don't understand, especially people outside of the countries yeah. we're talking about. They they really don't understand 
the the depth and the scope of what's going on uh, in terms of wildlife trafficking and and corruption, and I just and Jane always talks about hope, but at times I, I've written that it's it's almost like pixie dust of hope. It's like we keep sprinkling it around, thinking it'll make everything better if we just have hope. But where is the real hope? Where I mean, where do you see? Because you, you have to find motivation every day. I mean, you're facing this yeah. every single day. Yeah. I mean, we've just, as we as we began today in the podcast, we're talking about you You just, you had a bust in Gabon two days ago, and then you had one that didn't quite go the way you wanted in Senegal yesterday. Um, what, how do you keep going every day? What What's the motivation? Um, look, I, for an activist, you know, there is no point of achievement and there is no luxury to sit back and say, wow, that is fantastic, that is great. Because as an activist, you have an interaction with the world around you that is meaningful. That is where the energy comes from. Every day, not every week, every day we have things that are failing, things that are succeeding, things that didn't succeed, a trafficker that was not arrested, another one that got out, but you have another one that you managed to put in jail, you have another one, another impact that you managed to do politically on something. Um, in the end of the day, you don't look back and say, hey, are things, are things solved? Because they're not, you know, it's a drop in the ocean. I can still say extinction is real, there are countries that are, during the time that I'm doing this work, were saying goodbye to their rhinos and their elephants, populations, one after the other. We are not winning. But an activist doesn't ask this question. It's a luxury that we don't have. We are fighters and we fight. It is an enemy. It is a real enemy. We get our energy from the fact we managed to do something. We managed to do something positive. We managed to affect a change, even a small change. You never ask yourself, is this change is a big thing? There were, there were things I was doing which I was thinking were going to make a huge impact, and they didn't. And there were small things I was doing that were later on ha having a, a larger impact. We're a community. It's not about, you know, it's about how we can make a change, how we can make a difference, how we can affect a change. And that means that maybe one person from the people who are listening to us now, just one, okay, will change his life course a little bit because of one word that we are saying. And it will grow and that spark will, will, will light something bigger. It happened to me a lot. I have people who are doing great things and who are saying, hey, I listened to something that you said once and I was like, what? It was a total waste of time. I didn't arrest anybody. I didn't do anything. I was just like, I was just talking. And, and yet something happened because being an activist is being a part of a community and understanding that affecting a change, it means that you will get more and more people doing that. Today, we are not winning. I can sleep because we managed to get somebody behind bars. I can touch what we do. Okay, I know that we, are, we have an interaction with the world that is trying to change it. Trying, you know. And maybe it wouldn't you know, maybe we're still losing and maybe 
it would not work and maybe we are going to lose all the eggs. It is definitely a, still a possibility, a real possibility. But I know that I was fighting for it and I know that others will join and with time there will be enough people to make to make a real difference. So it really is be that change you want to see. Yeah, for anybody out there. Ophir, thank you so much for taking the time um, to be with us on Talking Apes. This is uh, incredible. I I would love to have you back again. <laughs> I know there's a, I know there's a, a hundreds of other stories you could tell, and uh, and but you really are an incredible breath of fresh air in this. Um, I mean, I've been around the NGO community and traveled in many of the same countries that you have for years and years, and it can get incredibly depressing um, when you see what you're up against. And to know that there's somebody like you out there, uh, it, you know, up to your up to your eyeballs in this fight uh, <laughs> every day, and yet you still smile. I mean, <laughs> what people people won't see is as we're recording this podcast, we're looking at one another. You're halfway around the world, and you have that huge smile on your face, and it, you know it. It makes me want to get up and go to work in the morning as well. So <laughs> thank you so much for for taking the time. Thank you, Jerry. Thank you. Thanks a lot. All right. Take care. Bye bye. Many, many thanks to Ophir Drory for taking time out of his crazy schedule and sharing his firsthand perspectives on the crisis of illegal ape trafficking, one all of us need to understand so we realize what we may be losing in these next few decades. You've been listening to Talking Apes, where each episode we explore the world of apes with experts from research to outreach with passionate primate people and conservationists from around the world. Our guests are at the very forefront of news about our wild primate cousins. You can find previous episodes of Talking Apes on our website at www.globio.org backslash Talking Apes or wherever you get your podcasts. If you have any questions for us here at Talking Apes or ideas about future podcasts, you can always email us at media at globio.org. I'd like to thank Talking Apes producer Meg Stark for all of her work pulling together another great episode of this podcast. And finally, I'd like to thank you. Talking Apes podcasts are made possible by listeners like you. So please consider supporting Talking Apes with your tax-deductible donation at globio.org. Once again, thanks very much for listening. I'm Jerry Ellis. This has been Talking Apes. <laughs>